You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, I don't think it took them by surprise. I think that they expected it. The opposition and the antagonism, the hatred, the vehement oppression of the gospel, I think that the apostles expected that full well. I don't think it took them by surprise at all. After all, Jesus had predicted it, had He not? I don't know that they would have expected it before Pentecost, but certainly after Pentecost, I think that they thought back to that time when they were with Jesus on the night before He was crucified, and Jesus said to them, if the world hates Me, it's going to hate you as well. If the world loved Me, it would love you, but you are not amongst the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And because I chose you out of the world, the world is going to hate you. And Jesus told him, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And then in John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus told his disciples, there's going to come a day when they will make you outcasts of the synagogue, and everyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. I think they knew that. I think that before Peter even got up to preach his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, I think he knew in his mind that by taking the message that he had been given by Christ, And to proclaim that message would inevitably cost him his life. I think Peter knew that. I think he was expecting that. And I think that it probably took Peter by surprise that he wasn't thrown into jail after his Pentecost sermon when 3,000 people got saved. Then we come to Acts chapter 4 and we find that that's exactly what happened. Peter had expected that. I mean, not only had Jesus predicted that this was going to happen, Jesus Himself had experienced it. I mean, the very people to whom Peter is preaching His message in Acts chapter 3 are the very people who crucified Christ for preaching the very same things. They turned Him over to be crucified because they considered Him to be a blasphemer. It was blasphemy to claim to be the Son of God. It was blasphemy for Him to claim to be the Messiah. For him to offer forgiveness of sins in his name was blasphemy. And they crucified him for that. They hated him. And now here the apostles come along. They preach the very same message. There's salvation in nobody else's name but his. And you must trust in him because he is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human flesh who died on a cross and God raised him from the dead. And so I think that they would expect to be crucified because the very, or to be persecuted because the very people they're preaching to are the ones who crucified Christ for saying those same things. I think they expected it. Those who hated Christ would now hate His apostles. Those who had persecuted Christ would now persecute His apostles. Those who had set their face against His message would now set their face against their message. So before Peter even delivers this sermon, I think he knows what inevitably is going to happen. Jesus had predicted it. Jesus had experienced it. In our day, we don't live with persecution, do we? All we say, well, we go to the office and our boss asked us to take our Bible off our desk or to take down that little Ten Commandments poster that's on our cubicle wall and we think we're being persecuted. That's not persecution. That's not even close to persecution. 
We don't live with persecution. The church in the United States is not blessed with persecution. We don't get that blessing. Instead, we're cursed with peace and affluence and prosperity and comfort. Those are what we've been cursed with. You see, I think Satan has figured out that it's just as easy to render a church useless as it is to persecute the church and try and keep people from joining it. If you launch a persecution, you may keep people from joining the church, and so you'll keep the numbers down. But I think Satan understands as well that you can render them basically impotent, unable to do anything, powerless, if you just allow them to grow and prosper and keep things nice, and eventually the church, which it has in the United States, becomes fat, dumb, and lazy. I'm not speaking of anybody here in particular, or even of this church in particular, but in general... Across the board, Christians in the United States are fat, dumb, and lazy. We just don't care. We enjoy what we have. We don't like to be pushed out of our comfort zones. We we like what we have, and we like to keep it that way. And so the church becomes just ineffectual. When there's no cost to being a Christian, you know what happens? Satan takes his children, and he puts them those tares right in with the wheat. And they look like the wheat, and they grow up with the wheat. And it's not until the harvest at the end of the age that the wheat and the tares come out. And until then, the true wheat has to abide alongside of some tares. And sometimes you just can't tell the difference from the outward perspective. But God knows the heart. And He knows who He's going to put on His left hand and on His right hand. And to whom He's going to say, Blessed are you forever. Enter into the joy of the Lord prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to whom He's going to say, Enter into eternal damnation. You whom I've never known. Only the Lord knows that. And so in Western Christianity, when there's no cost to being associated with being a disciple of Christ, then we live in this situation where there's just no personal sacrifice that I have to make to be a Christian. And that can be a blessing sometimes, but I think it's more of a curse than it really is a blessing. The apostles never knew what that was like. They never knew what life was like for you and I. They never knew what it was like to go to church and not have to worry about what somebody was going to say or what it was going to cost them. They never knew what it was like a day of their life to be in favor with everybody and to be able to worship freely. They didn't know that. Because persecution for the church started early. It starts in Acts chapter 4, not too long after the birth of the church. And we've covered Acts chapter 3, and we're going to be moving our way in the next few weeks through Acts chapter 4. And I want to remind you, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been together in Acts, I want to remind you that chapter 3 and chapter 4 are connected. This is all one incident. Acts chapter 3 begins with a miracle that takes place after the day of Pentecost. We don't know how long after the day of Pentecost. Maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple days, maybe some months, a couple years. We don't know. But the Lord has been adding to the church daily those who are being saved. And sometime after the day of Pentecost, I think it's a relatively short period of time, Peter and John are entering into the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You remember the story, the beggar is there at the beautiful gate. And Peter turns to him and he says, In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And immediately he stands up and his feet and his ankles are strengthened. And he can walk. And not only can he walk, but he can jump and he can leap. And so he does that. And into the temple he goes with Peter and John at the hour of prayer, a solemn hour. It's quiet. It's contemplative inside. And in comes these two apostles and this man who's been healed. And everybody notices that this beggar, this one who now walks, is the one who used to sit at the temple gate and beg alms. And that draws their attention to him. And verse 11 of chapter 3 says that they rush 
over to Peter and John. So a, a crowd begins to gather and Peter senses an opportunity to preach and so he does. Verse 11 of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 3 contains Peter's sermon. The very first thing he does is direct people's attention to Christ. He says it's him. And he remember the whole point of the sermon is who is this one in whose name this man has been healed? That's the question. Who is this one? Because Peter said, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene. Well, who is he? Peter answers that by referring to Christ by all of those names. He's Jesus, he's Christ, he's prophet, he's servant, he's prince of life, and he is the holy and righteous one. All of those names he uses to describe Christ. And then immediately after that, he goes to the Old Testament, he gives an exposition of the Old Testament passages that predicted Christ, and he points them from the Old Testament to Christ, and leaves it right in their court and says, you must repent. And God is going to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. You have to give up your sin and trust in this one whom God has raised from the dead. Whom you crucified, by the way. And that brings us to chapter 4. Look what Luke says. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. First instance of persecution in the book of Acts. Uh, there was some resistance and opposition to Christ and the disciples. And, and of course they persecuted Christ by putting Him to death and would like to have probably done the same to His disciples. But they figured that once they put this leader of the whole thing to death... That would take care of this movement. And of course, they weren't counting on the fact that he would rise from the dead, which he did. And so once the church starts, now they've got a whole other issue. They've got not just one guy that they've got to deal with, one preacher, but they've got 12. And they've got 12 preachers who are gaining converts at a very rapid rate. So this has to be dealt with. So chapter 4 introduces us to the concept of the persecution of the church. And we're going to notice four things. First of all, I want you to notice the people who are involved in the persecution. That's in verse 1. Luke says they were speaking as they were speaking to the people. That means that Peter's sermon was interrupted. Peter wasn't done. They weren't sitting around having coffee and tea and in bus this group of people to persecute them. That's not how it happened. Peter and John are in the middle of preaching and proclaiming and teaching the people and talking with them. And as they're speaking, in comes three groups of people. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Three groups of people. Now they say that politics makes for strange what? Bedfellows. Well, friends, if politics makes for strange bedfellows, so does opposition to the gospel. I find it interesting, the three people that end up persecuting these early Christians. Look at that. First of all, you got the priests. Second, the captain of the temple guard. And third, the Sadducees. Why are these strange bedfellows? Well, listen to this. The priests were just the, the ordinary priesthood. They were on a rotating basis. Every so many weeks, they had their slot in the temple to do the sacrifices and the work of the temple. And, and so... You know, you may have a priest there who's doing the overseeing the whole service of the temple, and this is his time on the stage. This is the priest's opportunity to to do the sacrifice, and he's been waiting for this and and preparing for this for weeks. I think it's 24 weeks. Every 24 weeks, they got their shot at the temple service, and so this is his opportunity on the stage. And in comes Peter and John with this guy that's been healed, and all the attention goes from the priest to who? Peter and John. Now you'd resent that a little bit, wouldn't you? You've been preparing for this for 24 weeks. It's been 24 weeks since you were last up in the rotation for the priesthood. And now all the attention's off of you. And they've kind of disrupted your whole service. Now the priest, his job, he was there because it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
He's there for the sacrifice. He's there for the hour of prayer. It's his responsibility to oversee all of this. And there's more than one priest, of course. There's a group or a family of priests who have this responsibility. Second, it's the captain of the temple guard. He is second in command to only the high priest. And his job, his whole responsibility, is to oversee the peace in the temple precinct. He has the responsibility to keep the crowds in order, to keep everything so that there's no crime that's going on, there's no rioting, there's no disruption. He is given the responsibility for keeping the peace within the walls of the temple. He's the captain of the temple guard. Now he shows up. Luke doesn't tell us whether he did or did not have other guards with him. But we know that at least the captain of the guard is there. Why is he there? Well, this whole crowd is gathered around Peter and John. And Peter and John are teaching some things that the crowd has never heard before. And the crowd maybe is not necessarily uh, friendly to. So you can imagine that the captain would begin to say, well, I want to put down a riot before the riot happens. Because all these people have gathered around Peter and John. And it's been a huge disruption to have this guy healed. We don't like disruptions. But the healing of this man has caused a disruption. So he shows up. There might have been some other temple guards there as well. We don't know, but we know at least the captain was there. The third group, and the most interesting of these groups, is the Sadducees. Now, I'll confess to you, I didn't know a whole lot about the Sadducees other than that they did not believe in the supernatural and they did not believe in the resurrection before this last week. But I spent a good portion of this last week just studying the Sadducees. These guys are fascinating. They hardly hardly crop up in the Gospels at all. But they come in and take center stage in the book of Acts. Now, the Sadducees are more of a political group than a religious group. They're one of four groups that made up that era of Judaism. They had the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. The Sadducees are kind of the aristocracy. That's the word I was looking for. They are the aristocracy of Judaism. They're the wealthy ones. They had political control. They basically controlled the Sanhedrin, that religious ruling body. They had the majority on the Sanhedrin. There were Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees could have, by vote, taken the Sanhedrin whichever direction they wanted to, but the Sadducees didn't have popular support. The people liked the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, because the Sadducees were snobby. They were wealthy. They were the higher-ups. And very kind of standoffish and looked down their nose at everybody else. And so that was just kind of this isolated, exclusivistic type of group of people. And they really controlled the priesthood, the higher priest or the high priest and the, the hierarchy of the priesthood. They didn't have people amongst the priests who were there at the temple, but the high priest was a Sadducee. Now their elitism and their snobbery was only surpassed by the oddity of their theology. The Sadducees traced their movement back to 150 B.C. during the Maccabean era. And they viewed themselves as the descendants of those who reinstituted Orthodox Judaism. They were sort of the keepers of the faith in their view. They saw themselves as perpetuating what their fathers had started, which was to bring back to the forefront Orthodox Biblical Judaism. And of course, it had gone a long way since then. They didn't believe that there would ever be a literal Messiah. didn't believe in a Messiah. They believed that the Messiah was an ideal, not a literal person, but an ideal. And the Messianic age was a process. They didn't believe that you could date the beginning or that there would ever come a time when God would intervene in history for His people. The Messianic age was a process, not an actual age. And the Messiah was an ideal, not an actual person. Now, can you see why they would butt heads with the apostles? What has Peter just preached? 
Christ is the Messiah. Uh, they don't believe in a literal Messiah. How can you have a Messianic age without a literal Messiah? Well, the Messianic age is just this process. That's what the Sadducees believe. And not only that, but they didn't believe in resurrection. Not necessarily just the resurrection of Christ. They didn't believe that either. They didn't believe in resurrection as a concept, as a doctrine. They did not believe that God brings back to life dead people. They did not believe that at the end of time, God was going to raise all men, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting damnation. They didn't believe in eternity. They didn't believe in life after death. They did not believe in a, in a resurrection in which there would be rewards and punishment based upon what we do in this life with God. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe in eternity, heaven or in hell. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in a spirit realm or in Satan and his demons. They didn't believe in any of that. They only took as Scripture the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. Everything else to them was secondary. But they elevated the, the Pentateuch above all of the rest of the Old Testament. And they were always in opposition with the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed everything that the Sadducees didn't, and the Sadducees didn't believe anything that the Pharisees did. So throughout the Gospels and throughout time, you always had them button heads with each other. Not only did they deny all of that, but they also denied that God was sovereign. They didn't believe that God was sovereign in salvation, that He was sovereign in creation, that He was sovereign in His providence. They didn't believe any of that. They believed that man was so free that man controlled and dictated and did everything that he willed to do and that God took a back seat to all of that. It wasn't God that was sovereign. It was man's freedom and his, his free will. And he, man could just do anything and God had to answer to it. That's what the Sadducees believed. They were the theological liberals of their day. Theological liberals of their day. Everything I've just described to you, you could pull out of the doctrinal statement of any liberal mainline church in the United States today. And that's a Sadducee, the theological liberals of their day. Now, there was one interesting um, conflict that Jesus had with the Sadducees. Matthew, I think it's chapter 22. You remember the Sadducees, they came up to Jesus and they wanted to trick him. And so they said, Moses said in the law that if a man marries and he dies without having children, that the man's that wife, that woman, is to marry his brother so that he can raise up children on his dead brother's account. Um, that's what the law stated. And so then they... Pose the question, and this is what the law says. Um, Jesus affirmed that, and then the Sadducees said, no, here's a question. They bring up this ridiculous scenario. We have a man, there's seven brothers among us. The first one marries this woman. He dies without leaving any children, and so according to the law, the other brother and the next of kin marries the woman, and he likewise dies, not leaving any children, and so the third one on down all the way through the seventh, and finally the woman dies. So she's had all seven of these brothers as husbands, and then she dies. And because they do not believe in the resurrection, then they asked him this ludicrous question. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because all seven of these brothers had her in this life. Whose wife is she going to be? Now see, they're quoting from Moses, whom they revere, and they're asking him this question because they don't believe that there's a resurrection, and they think they've got Jesus in a corner. And Jesus said, you're ignorant of what the Scriptures teach, because in the resurrection, we do not marry nor are we given in marriage, but we're like the angels in heaven. Marriage is not an issue in the resurrection. And then Jesus does this. He quotes from Exodus, one of the books they revere, and he says, Do you not know what is written when Moses said of God, I am the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of the dead? He quotes from their own book to disprove their own doctrine. And they walk away scratching their head amazed at his teaching. That was Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees. And look at the apostles' encounter with the Sadducees. Peter just preached a messianic message. 
He's preached a message in which he says there is a Messiah. He's a literal Messiah. He's inaugurated the Messianic age, and he is going to consummate that Messianic age. He's been crucified. He's been raised again from the dead, and God is sovereign in salvation because he has predestined all of these things to happen. Now, do you think that that graded the Sadducees? Sure they did. Peter's just preached a message in which he attacks nearly everything the Sadducees believed. Well, they've got to stop that. And so they do. Now, what makes this strange bedfellows? Look at this. You've got the priests who believe in the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Christ, but believe in a resurrection or that God gives life to the dead. You have priests who believe in eternity, that there is life after death, and that there is reward and that there is punishment. You have these priests who believe everything that the Sadducees deny. And you have the Sadducees believing everything that the priests deny. But they will lay aside all of their core beliefs to go after what? The truth. What's strange about this is that the priests would rather fight against the doctrine that they believe than to and deny that doctrine altogether, join forces with the Sadducees and fight against what they believe than have what they believe proved to be true in Christ. The resurrection of Christ proves the Sadducees are heretics. The resurrection of Christ proves that the priests are right and the Sadducees are wrong, but the priests can't stomach that. They would rather deny that they're right, not be concerned with being proved to be right, and join forces with those that they oppose in order to attack Christ. They hate Him so much, and they hated Christ so much. Friends, they're just like unregenerate man. They're willing to give up any doctrine and anything other than submit to His Lordship. And that's what they do. doesn't matter what you believe. People will abandon their core beliefs to fight against something that they believe to be wrong. Because they hate Christ. That's what the priests did. Those are the people who are involved in this persecution. Sadducees are an interesting bunch. Second, I want you to notice the the problem with the gospel. First, we see the people who are involved in opposing the gospel. The second, the problem with the gospel is in verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were agitated. That's what the word translated disturbed means. It means to be stirred up. They were agitated. What were they agitated at? Two things. Number one, the fact that John and Peter taught. That was enough to do it. Here were these untrained, unlearned Galileans who were in no way connected with the priests or the temple or the ministry. And all of a sudden, all of the focus from the temple worship has been drawn to them. And this agitates them. That these two men who are unlearned and untaught would dare to set themselves up as teachers of the, uh, teachers of the people. Particularly teachers in religious matters. And that galls them. And it galls them not only that they taught, but also the facts that they taught. Look what it is that they taught. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That stuck in the throat of the Sadducees. They couldn't accept that. They couldn't accept that. And neither could the priests. You see, if these Sadducees and the priests and the temple guard have one thing to commend them, it's this. They understood accurately the implications of the resurrection. They understand that. They know that if Christ is risen, He is the Messiah. Now in the back of their mind, they know that that tomb was empty on the third day. They know that the disciples could not have stolen the body. They know that the the guard that was at the tomb did not take the body. And they know that there's never been a body produced. And they also know that there are hundreds of eyewitnesses who say they saw the risen Christ. All of that. 
The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, they know all of that. But they also know that if he is risen, then he is the Messiah. If he is risen, then he is the Son of God. If he is risen, then he is who he said he is. He is God in human flesh. And they also know that if he is risen, then he will also one day raise up all men, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting damnation. He will raise up all men and he will raise up some to eternal life with him and others to eternal separation from him, depending on whether you will trust him for salvation or whether you reject him. They know that if Christ is risen, the Sadducees are heretics. They're wrong. And they don't want to give up any of that. And so they're going to fight against this. What is it that galls them? Paul said it, Acts chapter 17. He said, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, and he has furnished proof by, to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Christ. There's coming a day on which God will judge all men through Christ, and he's furnished proof by raising Christ from the dead. And they know that if Christ is risen, then they will stand before him. And so they hate the fact that Peter and John are preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the priests don't want to be proved right about resurrection at this point. They don't want demonstrated once and for all to the Sadducees that God does raise the dead. And here's the evidence. He raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. They don't want to give that that ground. So they join forces to oppose it. That's the problem with the gospel. That was the problem with their preaching. It revolved around the resurrection. Third, I want you to notice the persecution of the gospel, and that's in verse 3. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. They laid hands on them. The word is is used, the word means literally to throw yourself upon somebody. Uh, It's used to describe waves that come crashing in against the bow of a ship. That's how the word is used. It carries with it a very violent idea, a very aggressive idea. It's not laying on of hands like we do with an elder. When we recognize an elder, we lay hands on them and pray over them. That's not what happened. They didn't walk up to these men and put their arms around them and say, you know, we just appreciate if you maybe teach somewhere else and grab them. Luke is intending to convey to us a very hostile, very aggressive, um, not overly, but a mildly violent scene where these men are, are seized, they're grabbed, and like waves dashed against a ship, their hands are laid on them and they're drug off somewhere and they're put into prison. This is the first time recorded for us in church history that you have somebody put into prison for the preaching of the gospel or for the sake of the gospel or for being a believer. Now, the idea of jail and prison is going to come up over and over again throughout the book of Acts. You're going to see that as a favorite tactic used by the enemy. Acts chapter 5, Peter lands in prison again. Acts chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus rounds up Christians and puts them into prison. Acts chapter 12, Peter lands in prison again. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. And of course, the last six chapters of the book of Acts are Paul's travels as a prisoner. It's prison, it's jail, it's imprisonment that becomes sort of the backdrop against a large, against which a large portion of the book of Acts unfolds. So you have them being thrown into prison and they stay there overnight because it's already evening. Why are they there overnight? Well, when did the miracle occur? Three o'clock in the afternoon, right? So by the time they get into the temple, a crowd gathers, Peter delivers his sermon, Word starts spreading that this is going on and they notice that there's a mob there and people kind of go over and they gather a crowd by the time the priests and the Sadducees and the temple guard catch on and they arrive there and they hear what's going on. They seize them and they put them into prison. It's too late to convene a trial. 
It's too late to call the Sanhedrin together. And besides, the Jews had a law against nighttime trials. Couldn't have a trial at night. Actually, they, they violated that law in one instance. Do you remember what it was? And they crucified Christ. And see, they hated him so much they'd convene a trial at any hour of the day just to get rid of him. So they had a nighttime trial. They broke their own law, had an illegal trial to try Christ before the Sanhedrin just because they hated him so much. But with the apostles, they're not willing to break the law because they hate them, but probably not as much as Christ. So they put them in prison, which sends a message to them, right? You're going to keep teaching like this? You spend a night in the slammer. You see how you like that. It'll cool you off for a little bit, give you some time alone to think about some things. And so they do that. They spend an evening in jail. Luke says in chapter 4, verse 4, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. That, my friends, is the progress of the gospel. The people who oppose the gospel in verse 1, the problem with the gospel in verse 2, which is the resurrection, the persecution, they get thrown into jail, and now in verse 4, the progress of the gospel. Luke does not want us to get pessimistic here. And so he says, a number of those who heard Peter's message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, you remember back in Acts chapter 2, what the number was who initially believed? 3,000, right? Well, the end of Acts chapter 2 says the Lord continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. So that 3,000 just started to grow and to grow and to grow. It got to a point where they stopped numbering everybody in the church, and they just numbered the men. And that's where we're at right now. Luke says the number of men was about 5,000. That would represent maybe households or family groups. So you have, if you have one woman for every man on average in the early church, by the time this happens, you have a minimum of 10,000 people who are believers. And after this, there's never a number given as to the growth of the church. That's kind of interesting. After this event, it just grew to the point where they stopped numbering it. There was no accurate figure. But throughout the book of Acts, Luke gives us these little glimpses as to the continual growth and the continual spread of the church. Listen to this. Acts chapter 5, we read, All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Acts 6 verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 9 verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Acts 12, verse 24, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts 16, 5, The churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And Acts chapter 19, verse 20, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now what do you get from verses 1 through 4? Let me close by suggesting two things. First of all this, Never, ever, 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 ever be discouraged in the face of opposition. Never. Never be discouraged in the face of opposition. Peter's point is, a great many of those who heard the message believe. Yeah, Peter and John are in prison, but don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged by the fact that what they did caused the gospel to go forward. Uh, never in your own life, never in, in any of your own ministry, and never in any of your readings about what goes on in the world, ever get discouraged at the persecution of the church. That's the reality that we have lived with for 2,000 years. And that's just the fact. That's the way it is. We are called to suffer because Christ Himself suffered and left us an example that we should follow in His steps, Peter says. So never get discouraged at persecution. Listen, there is nothing that man can do to the church or to Christians that will reduce the number of the elect by even one. 
Everybody that God determines He's going to save, He will save. God is completely sovereign. He is completely in control. Everything is working out according to plan. And God is unfolding His plan of grace. And there is nothing that man can do to stop it. Unleash all of the fury of the gates of hell. Everything the enemy can think of. Anything man can do will not affect the church one iota. Because at the end of time, we will stand before Christ as a bride unblemished. And every living stone will be there. Every last one of his people will be there. And that against all opposition, all resistance, and all persecution. There is nothing that can happen that can affect what God is doing through his church. He will build his church. And nothing will prevail against it. Second, not only do not be discouraged when you face opposition, the second thing I want you to notice is that our primary concern should be the spread of the message and not our own personal comfort. You notice that? Peter and John are thrown in prison. So what? The number of those who believed increased, and the church came to number about 5,000 men. That's the point. Verse 4 is the whole gist of it. Verse 4 is the whole point. It's not the suffering. It's not the persecution. It's not the opposition. What it is, is that a number of those who heard the message believed. That's what's important. Now I ask you, what are you more concerned about? Your own comfort? Your own peace? Your own tranquility? Or the spread of the message? What are you more concerned about? Your own feelings of goodness and wellness and happiness? Or the spread of the gospel message? What concerns you most? If you learn anything from verse 1 to 4, learn this. It's the spread of the gospel and the advancement of the message and that those may believe that should affect us the most. That's what our priority should be. That's where our passion should lie. The proclamation of the gospel, not what happens to us. Paul said it well in Acts chapter 20. He was going back to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be arrested. Then he was going to land him in prison eight chapters later. And Paul said this, I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. It's not about me, Paul said. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It's about the message. And oh, if all of us could only get that in our hearts. It's not about me. It's about the message. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my feelings of peace and tranquility. It's not about my inconvenience. It's about the message. That's what matters most. We see ourselves at the center of our own little universe and everything else takes a back seat. It's the other way around. It should be the gospel and the advancement of the message and the glory of Christ, which is the center of our own little universe. And everything that we do should take a back seat to the advancement of the message. Paul, in his first imprisonment, wrote to the Ephesians and he said, pray on my behalf. What, that I would get three square meals a day and a warm bed to sleep in or get out of prison? He didn't ask for that. He said, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in order that I may preach as boldly as I should preach so that the proclamation might be fully made. Pray for me that I would preach. Not pray that I'd be released from prison. Not pray that I'd get three square meals a day. Not pray for me that I would be warm and comfortable and that the the back ache and the, the pain in my neck from the stones would stop hurting. None of that. Just pray that I would be able to preach. What mattered most to Paul? The advancement of the message, not himself. He wrote to Timothy in his second imprisonment, 2 Timothy chapter 1, don't be ashamed of me or of the gospel, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul said, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but everybody deserted me. But Paul said, May I not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully made. He had finally stood and preached to Caesar. And Paul said, Now all the Gentiles have heard. Yeah, I've been stoned. Yeah, I've been beaten. Yeah, I've been shipwrecked. Yeah, I've suffered in prison. Yeah, I've been hated. I've been persecuted. I've been hunted. People have wanted to kill me. But hey, here's what matters, folks. Paul says, I had the opportunity to preach to Caesar. Now all the Gentiles have heard. And then he could say, I'm, I'm laying aside. I've done. I finished my course. The proclamation has been fully made. What mattered to Paul? His comfort? Proclamation of the message. Yeah, Peter and John were thrown into prison, but hey, that's just the backdrop. The main issue here is this. The proclamation was fully accomplished. Peter preached. He was faithful to do what God had called him to do. Yeah, he was put in prison for it, but look, the issue is this. Many who heard the message believed, and the number came to be about 5,000 men who got saved. So never ever be discouraged if the message faces opposition, and never let your own comfort stand in the way of boldly proclaiming the truth about Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for what Your Word teaches us and for this example that we have from Peter and from John. And we thank You for how even in Your Word You have have shown us that the priority is to be a message of the Gospel, not our own comfort, not our own our own feelings or our own advancement. But we pray, God, that through us You may accomplish the proclamation of truth and the advancement of Your kingdom and that You would use us as instruments to do that very thing. We want to be instruments used by You to do that. And we pray that You would convict us when our own comfort and our own feelings stand in the way. And never let that happen. We pray that we would be faithful to do what You've called us to do and that Your Word would accomplish what You have desired for it to accomplish. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.